go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello, and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. My name is Hal Bryan, and I'm one of your hosts. I'm EAA's Managing Editor for Print and Digital Content and Publications. And uh, my counterpart today joining me in the studio across the table, it is... Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director. And uh, Tom, we are joined virtually through the magic of the internet and a terrific little service we use called CAST uh, by Lisa Turner, a uh, longtime aircraft builder, uh, A&P mechanical expert, uh, author extraordinaire, all kinds of wonderful things, and a great friend of EA and a monthly columnist in sport aviation. So Lisa, welcome. Thank you. That was quite an introduction. Well, don't uh, don't expect me to say it again because I already forgot half of it. But uh, and I'm sure I left out a bunch of the good parts. So anyway, uh, Lisa's joining us today to talk about uh, about restoration projects, and this is uh, somewhat of a loose follow on to uh, to a recent episode that uh, that we did about scratch building. But this is focused on uh, those people, uh, and I I think it's safe to say uh, that all of us. Uh, Tom and Lisa and certainly myself are in this category, somebody who finds an affection for an older airplane in particular and uh, and feels that urge to reach out and uh, and rescue it. So we're going to talk through some of the the pros and cons and some of the gotchas. This is something Lisa's written about extensively and bring some of that stuff to life today. So, Lisa, um I think one really good place to start because we talked about scratch building in uh, in yeah in that recent episode that we did with, uh, with with myself and Charlie Becker and John Egan about our our Cub projects. Um, those are all amateur built aircraft, which are um, I think familiar to most people in the EA world. Uh, you know that basically if you can if you can build it, you can fly it uh, here here in this country. And there's um, there's some very uh, um, you know manageable regulations around that. I think a lot of people, a lot of amateurs anyway, are, are maybe a little in, more intimidated by the process and the rules that surround restoring a restoring or repairing a type certificated aircraft. Um, could you take us through a little bit of the differences? Because you've done both. Uh, you've built a Pulsar and I believe a Kolb, and uh, you're working on your next um, amateur built project, uh, but you've also done a, um, a number of repairs and restorations. Can you take us through the differences between amateur built and standard category? Well, the, that uh, session that you had on scratch building was was really interesting because I have I have just so much of a um, an amazement at the folks who want to do the scratch building, and it's it's just it's so involved. I don't think I could do it. Uh, the, there's not a lot of difference though between scratch building and the restorations, and we'll all talk about what those differences are, but you're, you're going from a situation where you've got lots of uh, time constraint, lots of issues around time and lots of issues around um, skills and money and things like that with the scratch building. And you have all of that with restorations. You're going to go through some of the same issues trying to figure out whether that's something that you can do. And one of the things I like to do in my articles is distill the the basic things down into just, you know, two or five or or six tips. And if you do that with the scratch building and with the restorations, you really come up with with three things that are similar. And I'll, I'll talk about the things that are different in a minute. But passion, patience, and psychology, if you have the passion, you'll have the patience. And if you have the psychology, then you'll understand whether it's something you can really engage in. Like, are you a builder or a flyer? And do you have the, the skills? So in that respect, they're, they're very similar. But the the rest of it really is quite is quite different because the the help that you can get around restorations is far more. And Tom, you, I mean, you could speak to that because you've you've done enough scratch building. It's 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 tough to find the information, right? 
Yeah, I think in, in certainly in my case and in Charlie and John's case, it's um, it's a little bit easier because we're essentially scratch building replicas of a very very well documented and and, and very good pedigree uh, type certificated aircraft. So you know anything that we have to make has been made many times over by both amateurs and by uh, Piper and its successors. So. Um, we're, we're lucky in that regard, but, uh, but, but yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, also, um, I think we should also mention too, that in, in the uh, restoration and and repair world, we do have a a little known rule out there called owner produced parts that allow you to, as long as you're following the original blueprints, um, do a lot of the same things that an amateur built, um, builder can do as far as fabricating parts. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But the, the great thing about scratch building, the great thing about restorations, the great thing about kit building in general is we can really do whatever we want. I know that absolutely there, there are regulations out there. I mean, you're going to, if you, if you go out and find things that you're going to stick together at the, at the end of it, you can't just get in it and fly. You're going to need to get a DAR, um, to, to come inspect it. You need to get an airworthiness certificate and, and, uh, Tom, you're the expert on that. Uh, but, but basically we can go into our workshops and do just about anything that we want. We can restore a home built. And this is something to, to be thinking about because with the explosion of home building, there are lots of used home builds out there and they're getting older. So at some point you may fall in love with something, but it needs a lot of work and that's a great project. So, you know, the difference is that it's, it's much, it's going to be much easier to do that than to do the scratch building. So I just, the caveat here is that, you need to understand the psychology of yourself, figure out what you really love, because it's that that teeter-totter between builder and flyer. You know, you're some, you get in the air and you say, I'm a flyer, I'm a flyer. But then you get in the workshop and you go, no, I think I'm a builder. Mm-hmm. Well, it, you need to, that, that teeter-totter needs to fall more often to the build side when you get involved in some of these projects, but home belts are great and you can go ahead and do that. And there isn't a lot of regulation. There's more, actually more regulation. If you're going to rebuild like a PA 12, there's going to be more because you really need the oversight of an AMP to be, be, be doing that. And uh, you're, you're going to need their help later in terms of the paperwork. Is that, does that help? That makes great sense. Yeah, and it, Lisa, you use those uh, the terms of the three P's: the passion, patience, and psychology. Um, and that's that's pretty interesting to me. And and you know, in your story, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, and you know, you and I have had sidebar conversations about this too, about that idea of falling in love with a project. And is is there a point where, or is there? Do you have guidance for people who fall in love with a project that? they really shouldn't have <laughs> that uh, I like how you said that the passion will give you the patience to work on it, but you've got to understand your own psychology. Um, unfortunately, we all know there are, there are projects out there. There's there are barn finds uh, and old, you know, rotten hanger finds and things that um, ultimately speaking may just get it, get someone in over their head and they end up having a negative experience and not be able to succeed. Um, how do you help somebody who has fallen in love with a project? How do you help them really look and be a little bit more objective about it and say, yes, you're in love with it, but this one may just be too far gone. Yeah, that's a good point because it happens all the time and we see it in our business. Someone will come in and say, Oh, this was too much for me, but how do you deal with that? I, I think you, one of my favorite sayings is you don't know what you don't know. (laughs) So how do you find out? Well, you go find people who do know. Go visit restoration shops. Find people on the field who are flying something that you're in love with. 
and check it out and listen to those people and find out what's involved. And at that point, if you say, you know, this really, I really do want to jump into this, then I would jump in with both feet. But but you got to go through the analysis. Uh, I, I mentioned that in that uh, January 2020 article. You, you need to go through the self-analysis first and then figure out what you need in terms of skills and knowledge and avail yourself of the resources that are out there. And a, a great place to go is it, all of these aircraft have owners groups and clubs, and you would want to just immerse yourself in that. And we've actually had people come to our restoration shop and say, can I work for free? <laughs> <laughs> so what are we going to say? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, they are looking for experience. They want to find out whether they can restore their own project. And we just, we love that. We just love it. So um, we try to help there. So avail yourself of the resources and find the people who can give you that help. And you're much less likely to find yourself halfway through saying, oh, what did I get into? Sure. And and I'm, I'm sure you'd agree. It's certainly been my experience that those, it's hard to find anybody out there uh, in any of those groups you mentioned who isn't incredibly willing to help and excited to help. Exactly. Exactly. And Lisa, you mentioned uh, so you mentioned your January 2020 article, and that that um, among many excellent articles you've written, uh, really uh, lays out very well uh, kind of the calculus that you go through when evaluating a project um, that we've already been discussing here. But um, one of the ones I, I one of the aircraft that you discuss in that article very prominently that I I really liked was um, the restoration of Smokey the Bear's PA twelve. So, uh, excuse mm-hmm. me, that's uh, Smokey Bear. Oh, excuse excuse me, his Smokey. middle name is not the. That's very important. The Forest Service will be all over us. <laughs> Am I right, Lisa? Yeah, Smokey Bear. <laughs> all right, fine. Smokey Bear is PA twelve. Maybe we can just edit that out. Tom's humiliating gaffe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I apologize to Smokey Bear, the U.S. Forest Service, and uh, anybody else who may or may not have been offended by that statement. But uh, anyway, <laughs> Smokey Bear's PA-12. Uh, so there's a good example of an aircraft that has um, it, it has an intangible value beyond the state of repair that it's in. Um, you know, as as a project, there are there are some aircraft out there that uh, you know, if you have the ability to take on a project like that have that kind of um, intrinsic value and, and and reason to be restored. I mean, we've talked about so many, you know, military, former military uh, aircraft, rare aircraft, um, and other noteworthy aircraft um, uh, on the podcast. And um, that's, uh, I, I guess, a good example of, of, of one of the factors that you need to evaluate when you're when you're looking at that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, it's amazing. These are these are craft that that definitely appreciate. So it's it's well worth your time to uh, to do the necessary things. And I talk about that actually in the in the October. What's called one big thing, October twenty twenty one. Should you repair or should you restore a project? And what we've found in the restorations that we've done is there's always a critical flaw. We always find damage and sometimes severe damage in the restorations. And that's because we take them all the way down to the bones. And we've seen a lot of situations where people go, well, yeah, I'm going to restore this. And they start and they go, no, actually, I think I'm just going to cover it. Wow. And they haven't looked far enough. And in the, the story, in the article, which is a true story, the door frame member, the vertical member, separated. It's a tribute to the aircraft manufacturers that the airplanes do so well and they, they can break, the frame can break. And so you land and say, oh, I can't close the door. What's the matter? It's just remarkable. Um, so 
those are things that you need to think through. Are you really going to do a restoration and not stop halfway and say, well, maybe I'll just. So it's that just part where you, especially with an aircraft that's uh, well-revered, you want to dig in and get all the way down to the, to the bare frame and actually restore it. And that way you're, you're going to find everything that's, that's wrong with it. Well, that's a really interesting point you raise too, Lisa, because there are, um, certainly there are degrees of restoration. You know, there's the kind of thing where, you know, every rivet has been chromed and, and, uh, you know, uh, shiny cylinder heads and, and, you know, brand new synthetic wrapped wiring harnesses you know you can go you can go on and on and on about all the details but there's a there's a difference between saying you know i want this to be a a nice airplane but maybe not a perfect 100 point show airplane uh there's a difference between making those kinds of decisions i don't even want to say compromises um you know sort of backing away from over restoring an airplane there's a difference between that and making decisions that compromise safety. Right, right, exactly. And that's why you get back to the the um, self-analysis is so important. And it's, uh, you know, some of it's a time management uh, issue as well as safety. You really need to understand that it's going to be, when you do a restoration, that it's it's going to take more time than than you think. <laughs> it's all right. It's just, it's like money. Right. It's going to take more money than you think. And I love Parkinson's law. Work expands so as to fill the time available. Yes, that's so <laughs> and true. The, you know, the corollaries are, you know, the the, the hangar will be full. The, uh, the workshop will be full. You'll never have enough space. It's like closets. You know, there's never enough room in a closet, no matter how big it is. And so the, a lot that's part of the psychology. So uh, I try to get people to think, okay, I'm really in love. But it's like the scratch building. You know, I'm not sure I would want to do the scratch building, but the people who do scratch building, they say, this is like, this is the most fun I have ever had. Right. Figuring all this stuff out. So again, it could just be marvelous, but you you, you have to do that analysis so you don't end up halfway through and say, uh-oh. Another interesting thing for me about that analysis, and you've uh, you've written about this a couple of times, and certainly in the you know the article we keep referring back to your January twenty twenty, you talk about the money and the time, and um, and I think it's even more recently you talked about well, just if you figure out what you think you're going to need for money, you think about what you need for time, and then double it. <laughs> And, and let that be your budget. Then if you do happen to come in underneath either one, you're pleasantly surprised. Um, and not to dissuade anybody or, or scare anybody off, but I, I in all the, the restorations that I've written about or had you know friends been involved in or looked over the shoulder on, I, I can't recall many, if any, where somebody said, yeah, it was a lot cheaper and a lot faster than I thought. <laughs> I, I wish that was the case, but has, has that been your experience? Do you come across many of those where somebody said, wow, this was this was cheaper and easier than I expected, and, unless they follow your advice at the beginning and sort of double those estimates? Yeah. Well, there's another factor here that we need to take into account, and it, it has to do with goals if and passion. So you combine passion with goals and you say, Here's something I really want to do. If that rises to the top and it's something that you can't get out of your mind and you wake up in the morning and you say, I have to, I got to get this airplane or I got to build that or I need to do this or that, that is, is going to grow and the, the, your brain's going to figure out how to get there. So if you don't have the money, you may find that somehow you do that through the choices you make in your life, you're all of a sudden it's going to be there for you. And I've seen this happen enough times to where, and it's, it, it's not totally explainable. I just think it's your goal seeking and you are so intent on getting to your goal, you get there. And whether it's money or it's workshop space, 
or gaining the knowledge that it all comes together. And I've seen that more often than not. So I've seen project failures, but more often than not, I've seen people who have, who, if they've done the analysis up front, this is what I really want. They end up getting there. Yeah. And it also seems to me, um, you know, working on a restoration is probably very similar to, to um, as we've talked about, very similar to, to, uh, to building an aircraft, um, you know, from, from scratch or from a partial, in my case, a partially completed project. Um, you really have the opportunity to make it your own as far as what you want to do with it. Like you said, I mean, the goals that you have, um, you know, you could take a, um, you could take a, let's say a PA 18 super cub project and you can turn it into the ultimate Bush airplane if that's what you want to do with it. Um, or you could take, um, an aircraft, you know, whether it has historical value or not and decide to do a very period correct restoration as Hal was talking about. So there's, there's a lot of different ways you can go with it. And, one of the things too that I, I I mentioned it in the scratch building episode. I'll just say it again. You know, on the um, uh, on on the on the finances side of it, the one thing that I really like about about a project um, is, you know. I, I don't have enough money to, to buy it to, to just outright buy a, uh, a, a a flying airplane. I mean, I could certainly take out a loan to do that, but um, but but in this way, um, you know, over the course of 10 years or so, um, you know, just a little bit here and a little bit there. And eventually you have a, uh, you eventually have a flying airplane. Exactly. Exactly. And you'll find it, it's amazing in the restoration community. People have, have parts. They, they have things, Oh, I'm not going to use this here. <laughs> it's, that's why it's so important to get to know as many people as you can who are involved in the same thing. It's, it's, a, it's a great way to not only get knowledge and get feedback, but to get resources, um, tools. And it's just, you know, the great thing about the flying community, the building community, is we'll just bend over backwards to help somebody. You know, it, it's just, it's what, it's what we do. So I think those things are probably easier than the scratch building for sure, because you're going to have uh, more, you're gonna have far more resources. Uh, that is something that we encounter all the time, and it it seems like in any uh, you know any project, any story that we we tell, you find those those bits where you know I'm working on this you know 1937 uh, whatever. And I needed the, you know, the particular uh, fitting for a Pioneer compass or something so obscure and so strange. And, you know, I, I, it turned out the next airport over the next town over, there was a guy who had uh, had one in his attic and, uh, you know, didn't have any use for it. And it, it just sort of appear. And you see those time and time again to the point where it, it feels as if you could just step into some of these restoration projects and and pretty much just count on that somewhere between starting and finishing a flying airplane, you know, you're going to hit, you know, at, at least a dozen seemingly impossible coincidences where people are going to uh, step in or you're going to find just the right thing in the right place. And you'll scratch your head saying, well, how could I possibly have known this was there? And, and you didn't. But as you said, it's about building that network, letting people know what you're doing getting the word out, making those connections. And, uh, and, and if you, if you take a little bit of a leap of faith here and there, it just, it seems like solutions sometimes will simply present themselves. Yeah, I believe, I really believe that there's a, it, there's a magic to it and I, uh, it's not, I haven't been able to explain it, but it's definitely there. It's, uh, you know, we get visitors to uh, the work we're doing. We probably have, seven projects underway right now. And when a family comes in with some young kids and, you know, they don't know anything about these airplanes, but their eyes just light up. It's so, it's just so exciting. And then we put the children in the cockpits of the aircraft and we take pictures of them. And, you know, later in life, they're going to go, look at that. <laughs> that's a, that's a 1938, you know, whatever. 
And it just, uh, it's, it's that kind of magic and that kind of excitement that, that provides the energy to drive what we're doing with our projects. Well, as you said, that's the, that's the first of your three P's. That's, that speaks to the passion because people in, have the passion not only uh, sort of on their own behalf for the aircraft and its history or whatever they want it to be, but there's that uh, the passion for sharing that aircraft and, and that experience that comes from there as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm uh, thinking that the whole area of knowing yourself, that self-analysis, uh, I've talked about that several times in in my articles because it's it's really the starting point but once you once you've done that analysis and you've set up your network of resources then you get into the science so you you have kind of the art the beginning where you're trying to you may not have all the answers and then then you take a look at the the science so choosing the right project to restore is critical. Taking, this is wild, I see this all the time. Take photos and label everything before it comes off the airplane. <laughs> we hear people say, oh, let's see, where did that go? <laughs> and it's such a simple thing, but just doing something that uh, that easy to take the photos and labeling things when the, when it comes off the plane, and and taking it down to the bare bones I talked about earlier is so important. So again, you know, you have to say, am I repairing or am I restoring? So if you're restoring, you've got to take it all the way down to find any damage. And then the other piece that we see that people aren't paying attention to are the ADs, service letters, service bulletins, the documentation. We've seen people uh, buy a project uh, without the proper documentation, without the logbooks, and that's just going to make your job so much harder. So the science part, if you jump into a restoration, you've got to get those lined up, especially the documentation pieces, get those lined up before you you uh, purchase the project before you start yeah that's absolutely true i i uh, remember working a case where a uh, somebody had finished their entire restoration and it was a very common airframe type that very commonly had a continental engine on it but this particular airframe was a i think a franklin or either a franklin or a lycoming um and they just you know popped the Continental on there, um, you know, assuming that that would be fine because firewall back, it's the same airframe, but not to the FAA. And um, there was uh, there, there was some paper. It's it's always it's important to make sure you have the paperwork in hand before you uh, uh, you change something uh, rather than uh, it's the one. I think the one area where it's um, far better to uh, ask for permission first than uh, beg, yes. beg for forgiveness later. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah. 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 But uh, you know, one other thing I just wanted to to, to mention you you're, you're talking about the passion for these projects and and kind of what it means to different people. Um, one thing that I really like about vintage aircraft and in in up you know in in, in contrast to a, at least a, you know a newer amateur belt that maybe you build yourself um, is that a vintage aircraft has well it's vintage it has so much history um, attached to it and. Part of the fun is just finding out where that airplane was for the last 70 years or so um, before it reached your hands. And, and pretty soon you start to realize that, I mean, you are the custodian of a very impressive piece of history that's had, you know, several lifetimes before it's gotten to you. Um, I mean, even just on a really small scale, um, we're working on a, on a Cessna 150 here at EAA that's hopefully going to go into our flying club someday. We found out that um, before it came to us, it was working for the uh, New York State Police. So, um, you know, our 9-11 speaker that we had on the podcast uh, a couple of um, months ago, um, you know, has a connection to that airplane because, uh, you know, he flies for the, uh, for the um, NYPD, too. Wow. Isn't that something? Yeah, that is. That's, that's a real plus is you're, you're restoring history. 
which is, you know, that's another bonus. And it's, you know, I said earlier that it's much easier to do a restoration in terms of the resources that you have available than scratch building. But there are some aircraft, the WACO is a perfect example. I think they produced, the original WACO aircraft company produced over 60 different models. And so when we get a WACO in to restore, we go, oh, where are we going? <laughs> what are we going to, which model is this? <laughs> you know, I mean, you get the designation, but then you say, well, but this is, this is supposed to fit here, but it doesn't. And, you know, we're working on a WACO cabin now, and, and we couldn't figure out oh, where do we, how do we get new windows for this? And, you know, because they're crank windows. Well, you just go uh, look up Model T windows, and there you go. So it's sometimes hard to figure out where you're going to get your parts. Uh, and sometimes there's the, well, actually not sometimes, all the time. There's trial and error to see what works and, and what fits. But for the people who do restorations and love it, that's the piece they love. Well, where are we going to find this? Well, we're going to have to make it. <laughs> it's, so it's, it's, uh, it is a nice marriage between um, a home-built and a scratch-built because you've got some information, but then you've got this additional historical factor that uh, you're you're actually participating in and uh, that that just adds a lot of a, a lot of uh, excitement to it well yeah and especially for like a, a really you mentioned the wacos and and and, um, and some of these older you know pre-war uh, aircraft um, there's literally nobody left alive who built it and there might be blueprints, there might be plans, there might be some documentation, but there was a lot of stuff about how that aircraft was built that was just the knowledge of the people, the common knowledge in the factory that's all been lost now. I mean, when we were um, reskinning the Ford Trimotor, it's like trying, you know, how to buck a rivet in a particular part of the wing is like trying to figure out how they built the pyramids. <laughs> you, you, know, you know, how did they do that? You have to kind of reverse engineer how the how the how the wing structure was put together. And we have some really talented machinists that were able to build this. No idea if this is how they actually did it, but they built this ingenious bucking bar system that that worked for us. Uh, so that that's that's part of the fun and challenge, um, too. Oh, definitely. Hal, it wasn't aliens. <laughs> it might have been aliens, Tom. Um, well, and that's that's a great point you bring up, Tom, because, uh, and, and Lisa, you talked about, uh, you know, finding the right roll-up windows. And, you know, turns out, and we, we do hear about this fairly frequently, especially in that, that golden age, pre-war era, um, you do hear a lot about, uh, like, bits of car hardware coming in. And... Uh, and to me, and, and the, Tom used the phrase reverse engineering, that idea of, of putting yourself in the mindset of somebody who was working in this uh, factory, one of those engineers was saying, okay, if I were building this airplane in the 30s and I wanted it to have roll-up windows because that was, you know, that was an amenity that was popular at the time. Where would I go? Well, I'd you know I'd look at car manufacturers, and and perhaps sure enough, you find that yeah, they did use some of that hardware from a Model T or whatever it was, and uh, and that to me is a very interesting piece of the history too, because you're at that point you've learned more, or you've learned about more than just the airplane. You've learned a little bit about the thinking and the insights of the people who originally designed and built it. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Really, when you think about it. There's so much that enters enters into it, and again, the when you do go through that self analysis, and you say, "Oh, look at here are all the things that I really love to do," um, a restoration just brings all of that together. So, one other question that I had for you, Lisa, we've got a few, certainly a few questions coming up, but uh, um, just circling back quickly to the the three P's, and we've talked about your self analysis and things like that. How about how that passion is what gives you the patience to get through it? Do you have quick advice for people who hit who hit that wall and who 
come across one aspect of a project and they just want to start throwing tools across the room and uh, and the, their their patience uh, has has run out and and they've forgotten the passion for a few minutes or they've redirected the passion uh, and and they they just uh, they just can't get past something. Um, what do you say to somebody who is temporarily in that spot in a restoration project? Oh, that would never happen. Oh, okay. Well, that's all the time we have. Uh, every restoration oh, yes. project is easy and perfect. No. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> now, I, I, my advice is to leave the project and go do something completely different. Just, you know, go on vacation. Um, there's a, a guy who wrote a book for writers, Kenneth Atchity, A Right Time. And mm -hmm. He, I, it's great because he, he'll say, oh, you sit down and you can't think of what to write. Take a vacation. Just put your pen down and go do something else. And he, he it's, it's great. Great sense of humor. You might want to actually go, go somewhere else for two weeks. <laughs> like, well, you know, some of us work, but. The, but the point is well taken, and that is get out away from the project and go do something else completely different. And you're likely, because of our psychological makeup, you're likely to uh, come back to it and say, wow, you know, I, I just, what happens is we run out of energy and we don't realize it. So that low energy factor prevents us from, from putting our difficulties in perspective. So get away. Um, don't even think about it. And then when you go back to it, you'll know. Now, there, there may be some people who come back to it and they say, this isn't the project for me. But that's relatively rare. Most of the time, people come back to it, they, they realize that they didn't have the right tool, they didn't get the right advice, they just, they need to back up, reassess, and start again. And they find at that point, their, their energy levels up, and their, their passion comes up along with that, and they're, and they're uh, happy to get started. Yeah, I have a, a friend who has, uh, you know, you'll see a project uh, that's kind of half finished, like a, a plastic model or something like that. And uh, they say, well, why haven't you uh, finished that? He's like, eh, I'm mad at it. <laughs> that <Yeah>. happens. <laughs> as long as you're stubborn enough to come back to it, I think that's fine. Um, but uh, Yeah, and we have to remember, too, that the wonderful thing about building an airplane is it is always – is always an excuse to go buy a new tool. That is true. <laughs> always. And, and it works. It works every time. Oh, I need. So it's just one, it's one of the many bonuses that comes with building an aircraft. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Lisa, shifting gears a little bit to, to your experience uh, or your specific experience. Uh, what are, what are some of the favorite restorations that, uh, that you've been a part of and have come through your shop? Well, you know, it's it's hard to say uh, because they're all so different, and I, uh, it's it it's that's tough. Like it, it's not really a question I can, I can even answer because every that's the one thing when you get involved in a restoration is every single one is completely different. But I think my joy comes from the the teardown, and I know that sounds strange but when we we get the airplane completely disassembled and stand back from it and we find a you know broken spar or a broken frame piece and other things that are that really need help and we just comment it's amazing this aircraft was flying with all of these issues it they're just it's again. I, I said this earlier. It's a tribute to the manufacturers that they're uh, substantially over-engineered, which is surprising because airplanes are supposed to be light. So where I get excited is I'll see. Look at look at this damage, and we're going to fix all this. 
And then when things start to go back together, there's real pride in workmanship, seeing seeing things go back together and go back right. And that's that does it for me. That's that's but that happens the minute that I tear it apart and I say, oh look, look at this. It's just very exciting to be able to discover all all of the uh, problems and then get them fixed. So, Lisa, if you were um, somebody came to you and said, you know what, I'm I'm looking for an airplane project, and I'm interested in in uh, in doing that, and maybe um, maybe just maybe they're lucky and they haven't fallen in love yet, and they're going to do things in the right order, and we know that doesn't always happen. Um, where do you uh, where do you send people? What kind of advice do you have for those people? They really need a checklist to go through to figure out where they are because if you miss any of them if for example you in the the article that i wrote impulsive love a friend of ours bought an aircraft with it didn't have a data plate and he knew nothing about it and uh, he was ended up being lucky because things turned out all right but those kinds of things you really need to put a checklist together uh, the, start with the passion, start with the love, identify the things that you really like, and then you've got to jump into the science of it. So you need to do your research. And it's just like if you, if you are going to, you, you want to build a kit and you, you don't know what it, what it's going to be. You've really got to start with, oh, what are the things that I love to do? in an airplane, you know, do I want fast airplane, a low and slow airplane, uh, figure all that out first, and then you're going to go do your research. So if it's, if it's a kit, you're going to go to the factory. If it's a restoration, you're going to do all your research on uh, what the airplane is, uh, what it should be, um, get advice on from other people who have done restorations on that same aircraft and go through a checklist of all the things that, uh, that actually the things that I put in, in, uh, that article that I wrote and do your due diligence. If you do the due diligence, then you're very likely to end up with a project that not only suits you, that you'll be able to maintain that passion around, but you'll also end up with something where you don't have a lot of stops and starts. So you you know you end up stopping and saying, "Oh no, well, wow, I missed this. What am I what am I going to do now in terms of documentation?" Uh, those things, getting them lined up, will will really ensure success in the same way that a kit builder is going to figure all that out ahead of time. And, and have a much higher rate of success, that the, the, prog- the project is not going to languish. Yeah, that's really good advice, Lisa. And, and I, I, I think having kind of a rational approach to it, which is really hard with something that's so, such an emotionally, for most people, uh, an emotionally involved purchase, like a, like a project or, a, you know, um, any, any kind of high dollar um, investment. Uh, I, I think um, it, it is important to be really rational. And, and uh, you know, if you're not quite ready for it, but this seemingly unbelievable deal comes up, just know there will be another one. Uh, I think that's really important to remember. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, again, the self-knowledge, we make decisions. Generally, we make decisions based on emotion. And what this process does is it, it says, basically, I'm going to do my scientific research and then I'm going to get, then I will be really excited about the project. So instead of making the emotional decision first, which is, it's what most of us do. I mean, we have to hold ourselves back from that because we, we, you know, we're just, um, it's, it's wonderful that we're creatures that, that can just have so much passion around something. But you, you've got to be very careful at the beginning of a project to, to 
use the logic and and understand that you that you're using the logic and that all that emotional um, reward will come, but it's but it's not the beginning. You really need to to look at the the logic at the at the start. Yeah, definitely, and maybe even also bring in uh, bring in somebody else who, uh, who who can make the rational decisions for you if you can't yourself or help you make the rational decisions. I yes. guess I, could, I should say. Yes, the the advice. The advice is great. And you'll find, too, that most people who are involved in restorations, they will help in terms of advice. If you, We, we get people calling us saying, hey, I'm looking at this, because actually on our website, we, we put free advice over the phone, and we mean it. We, we, we want to talk to people. And so we'll, we'll say, uh, send us pictures. And we'll say, well, you know, we've got a concern here. Uh, we see on picture six that, and so we try to help as much as we can. And, and everybody does that. So um, don't, if you're going to get into a restoration project, don't be shy. Find everybody that you can find. Definitely talk to people who have done a restoration for that aircraft before, and you'll get tons of advice. I mean, you can, you can call all the, all the commercial restoration places they'll talk to. It's it's just amazing. It's a great community. Oh, no, the the community is a wonderful resource, and thank you for all the work that you're doing in um in in this area and and helping people out with uh, with their projects. Um, as we get to the end of the uh, the show here, Lisa, we definitely wanted to take a second to to plug your your uh, latest book, uh, Dream Take Flight. Um, where can people find that um, if they uh, want to pick it up? Okay, yeah, thanks. Uh, Dream Take Flight is available through the EAA bookstore and the website, and you can also find it on Amazon as a, an ebook, a paperback, a hardback, and an audio book. And I got a, I got a great um, Canadian narrator, just has great, um, great voice, great warmth to, uh, to read that. And at the end of Dream Take Flight, which is my story about building the pulsar what i learned and the the trials and tribulations of building the pulsar it also at the end has uh, how you can build an airplane yourself or it 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 you could do anything anything that you really really want to do how to figure that out and i i do have a follow-on book called your simplest life which takes the the goal setting and time management and shows you how to figure out how to prioritize your time and how to get things done. Because I hear all the time, oh, I don't have time to do a restoration. I don't have time to build, or in some cases, I don't have time to learn how to fly an airplane. Well, you know, if, if you figure out what you really want to do, you'll find the time. Absolutely. You'll find the time. So the, uh, both of those, both, books are available on Amazon, but the, uh, the dream take flight is on, uh, the AA site in the, in the bookstore. Well, that's uh, terrifically said, you know, it's funny. A lot of people write books and give advice about things. And, uh, and in some cases they sort of, they mean well, but then you look at, uh, you, you look at what they've accomplished and you wonder, well, are they really in a position to, to, to give advice? But, uh, but you are the real deal. Uh, everything you've accomplished in your, uh, in in your life thus far, so many achievements in so many different areas. Uh, your words are always an inspiration, uh, and of course, everybody uh, out there listening can can uh, enjoy you every month in uh, Airworthy, your column in Sport Aviation. Um, I also wanted to add, Lisa, you, you and uh, uh, Jerry have a restoration business. We've talked about it a number of times. What's the website uh, for your business if, uh, if somebody wants to learn more about your restoration work? It's RestoreYourAirplane.com. RestoreYourAirplane.com. And that is remarkably easy things, to remember. <laughs> one of the fun things uh, is we have live webcams in the workshops. So if you want to see our mechanics in action, you can just go to the, go to the site. It's funny. We get... Uh, customers will say, 
you're not working on my airplane today. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, it's Sunday. <laughs> what do you know? It's a lot of it's a lot of fun uh, to to uh, go check out the the webcams. Well, that's great. And uh, so again, that's RestoreYourAirplane.com. And then, as Lisa mentioned, you can find her books at Amazon. Uh, find her uh, Dream Take Flight at EAA.org in our shop. And Lisa, we can't uh, thank you enough for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. And uh, uh, of course, I certainly appreciate the the chance you and I have to work together month over month on your column in the magazine. And I'm always grateful uh, grateful for your efforts there as well. Well, I appreciate that. It's really an honor to to be with you. And one of the things that that I found out a number of years ago in joining the EAA is it's all about giving back. So you you go through a time where you take advantage of of advice, and it and then you realize that is it, it's time to give back to other people. And it's just the, in terms of the community that is a real hallmark to be able to bring other people in and show them the things that we find so incredibly exciting. So, well, and it's our privilege you. to, uh, absolutely. It's our privilege to help give you, uh, to help give you a, a channel and a mechanism to, uh, to be able to do that and reach a lot of people. So, uh, so our thanks to you again, uh, Lisa. Um, I also want to take a quick second and uh, thank uh, those of you out there who uh, take time to leave us reviews. Uh, we had just a, a wonderful review just recently on iTunes. You can go over to uh, iTunes podcast reviews and check that out. Username Dran underscore Reb. I'm not sure what that means or stands for, but thank you very much for the kind words. We really appreciate it. Uh, for everybody else, please uh, please do take the time to leave us a review, or you can send us a note at feedback at ea.org. Uh, each of these podcast episodes has a uh, landing page on our blog, inspire.ea.org, and you can leave comments and questions there. And uh, it, uh, we say it every time, and it's uh, it's true every time. We always um, we're only able to do this show because we. Uh, we get feedback and uh, and good comments from from people like you. So with that, thanks again to everybody for listening. Keep the feedback coming. Keep the uh, the good reviews out there. We really appreciate it. And we'll catch up to you next time when you're cleared to land on the green dot. <laughs>